You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Farad Zengana, medical director of the Endocrine Diabetes and Osteoporosis Clinic, EDOC, in Sterling, Virginia. Dr. Zangana also serves on the board of directors of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, AACE. I'm Dr. Farhad Zangana, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Paul Jellinger, who will address the issue of postprandial glucose and its complications. Dr. Jellinger, MD, is the master of the American College of Endocrinology. He serves as a professor of medicine on the volunteer faculty at University of Miami and has served as chief of the section of endocrinology at Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Dr. Jellinger, thank you and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So my first question is, uh, obviously, diabetes is, everyone knows about A1C, but hemoglobin A1C is comprised of postprandial glucose and fasting. Much attention has been on the fasting blood sugar, and many of my patients are not even checking postprandial before they see me. So what is the importance of postprandial glucose? And I'll let you uh, educate us on, uh, on this issue. Well, thanks for asking that. It, it, I believe it's, it's quite important. I mean, there were two main areas uh, of concern regarding postprandial hyperglycemia. One area, of course, is the fact that uh, postprandial uh, blood glucose excursions comprise so much of the A1C, particularly at the A1C levels less than 8.4. Uh, Monier has shown this in a very elegant study, and others have shown it too. As the A1C is, uh, gets below... interesting area. So uh, where I want to kind of approach this is we are sleeping very little and we are awake many hours of the day and we spend most of our day in a perpetual PPG or postprandial glucose state. So isn't it true to say that, you know, without fixing the PPG, you really can't get to good A1C before even we get on to all the fancy cardiovascular uh, discussions? Absolutely. In fact, you 
you took the words out of my mouth that that could have been the third reason why it's so important we do we do live in in a in a postprandial state we spend more than 12 hours per day postprandially and there's only about four or five hours uh, before we awake in the morning that are truly fasting so it's foolish to focus only on the fasting blood sugar when the uh, overwhelming majority of time uh, uh, we are either post-absorptive, uh, which is a little later phase, or postprandial, but we are not truly fasting except for a few hours in the morning, and that's a very important point. That point was demonstrated by Dr. Service some years ago in an important article. Uh, so, yes, we, we live in a postprandial state. We need to lower it to get the A1C down. There are, may well be toxic effects. There's many reasons to want to target. Plus, the last reason is, it's unrecognized. We don't know uh, how many patients have postprandial hyperglycemia because we don't look for it. As you mentioned a moment ago, you, many patients are not checking postprandial hyperglycemia. But when when it has been looked at in studies, even with very good A1C six and seven, the uh, number of patients with uh, unacceptably high post-challenge blood sugars or postprandial uh, blood sugars, depending on whether it was done after a meal or after a glucose test. Uh, is extraordinarily high if you just look for it. So even at AMCs between 6 and 7, a, a significant percentage of patients will have elevated post-meal blood sugars, but nobody knows anything about it. So if you have to check once a day, what I usually tell my patients, if you're checking once a day, do it once before breakfast, once after, two hours after breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so you're staggering. Is that is that a good recommendation to that subset of patients just checking once a day? Yes. Um, there are many ways. I mean, we really can't ask patients to check uh, two hours after a meal, every, after each meal every day of their life. Uh, that's really uh, excessive. So there, what you suggested is an excellent approach. What I often do with my patients is I ask them for the two- to three-week period before they're coming to see me for a visit, I ask them to check one post-meal blood sugar each day but a different meal each day. So one day post-breakfast, one day post-lunch, one day post-dinner, for about a two to three week period before they see me and bring those records in. And I often get uh, compliance with that, not in every case, but that gives me a pretty good idea of just what's going on. So uh, we talked that postprandial glucose is harmful to your A1C. Uh, let's now talk about uh, postprandial glucose being harmful to your heart because obviously diabetes is a heartbreaker. So what's the uh, level of evidence on uh, PPG and its harm on cardiovascular disease? Well, there's, there's, there's a huge epidemiologic, uh, 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 there's huge epidemiologic evidence to suggest that post-challenge or post-prandial blood glucose relates significantly to cardiovascular risk and mortality. And, uh, you know, the, it goes back to 1980 with the Whitehall, Whitehall study, and the most recent large study to confirm all this is the DECODE study of uh, 1999. Uh, and, every, and then there are about eight or nine studies in between, and those are just a smattering that very convincingly uh, demonstrate that the rise in post-meal blood sugar, looking at this in an observational uh, form, an epidemiologic form, uh, the rise in post-meal blood sugar is a much greater risk than the, than the fasting blood sugar in every one of these studies. And I'm looking now at a smattering of the studies, and they come from all, all corners of the earth, from Honolulu uh, to uh, Scotland to Europe to California to Great Britain, uh, and uh, again across Europe and then France, Wherever, uh, uh, and also to um, Finland, wherever you study this issue, the post-meal or post-prandial, which uh, post-meal or post-challenge blood sugar excursion has been a, a much greater predictor of cardiovascular disease than the fat. 
fasting has, especially in decode, which was a very powerful, very powerful study, uh, as I mentioned, the most recent study. So we have a huge amount of epidemiologic study, I would say maybe 20 studies, that all point to the fact while it's harmful to have fasting hyperglycemia from a cardiovascular point of view, it's much more harmful to have post-meal excursions. And if you have both, you're at the highest risk. Uh, this has been shown uh, very nicely in the Honolulu study. Even in the Honolulu study, Honolulu heart study, uh, uh, one-hour post-challenge glucose uh, levels were assessed, and, and individuals who didn't have diabetes were, were followed for 12 years. And uh, their cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular rent, uh, event rate paralleled exactly, even uh, during that 12-year period, what that one-hour reading was as much as 12 uh, years prior. So that was very powerful as well. Uh, the other uh, uh, evidence that is uh, very important to remember is what I alluded to earlier, is that the experimental evidence that post-rise uh, in blood sugar is harmful to the endothelium. And we have a number of studies that suggest that when you just drink a glucose load, um, you, you have uh, endothelial dysfunction. If, we, if you and I did that, presumably we don't have diabetes, we would show some transient endothelial dysfunction. When persons with prediabetes or diabetes drink a glucose load or increase their glucose level, they have much more endothelial constriction, much more endothelial dysfunction, dysfunction and it takes many, many hours for it to return to normal. While those who are normal uh, and don't have diabetes will have transient endothelial uh, constriction and dysfunction, but within an hour or two it returns to normal. So. Um, there's, there's good evidence that uh, in a number of studies that endothelial uh, function is, is negatively impacted by the rise in, in blood sugar, and it's been shown a number of, a number of times, as well as the um, inflammatory milieu. It's been shown that inflammatory markers seem to increase as postprandial glucose rises uh, acutely, uh, the C-reactive proteins, etc., cetera, uh, increased. Uh, and also uh, glycosated LDL, it's very interesting that LDL, as you know, um, is uh, quite harmful when it's oxidized uh, to, uh, in terms of the endothelium and promoting coronary artery disease. And it's been shown that when you give an acute glucose load, you increase the amount of oxidized LDL acutely over several hours. So drinking glucose makes the LDL much more harmful. So uh, there, are, there are a number of um, uh, 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 aspects of why uh, raising blood sugar acutely is harmful. Uh, epidemiologically, very strong evidence, and experimentally, equally as strong evidence. What is lacking in this story is a good prospective trial that uh, shows that when only the postprandial glucose was targeted and nothing else was, that there was a uh, benefit in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction. There really hasn't been a good trial to show that. It's a very difficult trial to do, as you can imagine. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Farhad Zangineh, and I'm speaking with Dr. Gellinger on diabetes and postprandial glucose management and its complications. So, um, so we pretty much discussed cardiovascular risk, and you uh, highlighted uh, all the challenges. Now, let's come to treatment. And of course, uh, Dr. Gellinger is the uh, architect of the uh, diabetes algorithm, so I want to kind of uh, bring that into the conversation, but at the same time... Before we get to the algorithm, can we talk about the targets for postprandial glucose? And I know uh, the first answer is always it depends, but can you uh, highlight some of these targets and enlighten us, please? Sure, and it certainly does depend. But uh, in, uh, ideally, uh, the uh, the ACE consensus statement 
and their target is any time postprandially, not two hours, but any time postprandially, it should not exceed one eighth. Some of us have a problem with that because that would indicate that at two hours of 179 blood sugar would be acceptable according to the ADA. But uh, 140 is the eighth goal, and 180 any time postprandial is the ADA goal. The eighth goal is shared by the International Diabetes Federation as well. In terms of the, uh, uh, it's not an easy target, by the way. It's uh, certainly a challenge to control post-meal excursions. The good news is that the newer drugs that have been on the scene for four or five years, maybe longer, uh, are very effective in doing that. The incretin-based therapies, uh, so-called DPP-4 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists, are unique in that they target post-meal excursions. So does uh, fast-acting insulin analogs. They always have, and that's always a choice to control post-meal excursions, fast-acting insulin analogs. But uh, we have certain advantages using the uh, incretin-based therapies, the DPP-4, the GLP-1, that are really worth uh, mentioning. You know, they control blood sugar primarily in the postprandial state, also to some degree in the fasting state, and they do it without, uh, without the risk of hypoglycemia or a very, very small risk of hypoglycemia, which is a terrific advantage. And it, they, work, they do that because they're glucose dependent. They only work when they have to work, and they stop working when the glucose levels come down to near normal, so they don't over-treat like uh, sulfonylureas may do and even fast-acting insulin may do. So uh, there's a safety value. You don't get hypoglycemia, but you get very nice control of the postprandial excursions. So with that in mind... Um, the ACE uh, uh, organization, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, um, took it upon itself to uh, form an algorithm, to create an algorithm uh, two or three years ago uh, that addressed the uh, weaknesses, we thought, and uh, of the existing algorithm by the American Diabetes Association at that time, and also brought into light the use of incretin-based therapies because they were uh, had been available for two or three years at that point. They were not featured any great degree in the ADA algorithm, and we thought uh, they should be, and uh, endocrinologists, even at the time the ACE algorithm was being, uh, was being created, were using them uh, very, very significantly. So we talked about uh, uh, having a tight PPG control. We talked about doing so without hypoglycemia, and, uh, and with that, now the treatment of diabetes should be individualized. So does this algorithm that you're going to uh, share with us, does that allow you individualization or does that give you kind of a cookie-cutter approach to diabetes? No, it, it absolutely does make a point of, of individualization. Uh, it's uh, listed uh, as one of the asterisks on the, on the algorithm itself and in the text that accompanies it. This is a, a rather strong point made about it. Uh, the A1C goal of less than 6.5, which is ACE's goal, is certainly should be individualized. Uh, there are patients who should not be uh, be held to that goal, uh, and we know those patients that, uh, that should not be held to that goal. The older patient, the patient with a long duration of diabetes or extensive comorbidities, uh, including a, a significant cardiovascular disease, and those are just a few, but uh, those patients should not have an A1C goal of 6.5 or, or even 6.9, maybe in the low 7s. Uh, and we make that point. So it should be individualized, and what we have uh, published is is an ideal situation for a young type 2 diabetes, uh, diabetic individual who has diabetes for less than seven, eight, nine years perhaps, in their 40s, 50s with no uh, significant cardiovascular disease. We can't forget about those patients. They need to be treated aggressively. So we do think that this algorithm fits for most, but certainly not all, patients with type 2 diabetes. Some should not be held to uh, this level of, of, of glycemic control. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Jellinger. We have run out of time. I can listen to you all day. Thank you for your insight and uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you again in the near future. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash diabetes.